James Scullin here from the Australia-China Business Council. Despite the growing engagement between Australian and Chinese tourism, education, investment and trade, 2018 was a challenging year for the bilateral relationship, particularly at the government-to-government level. On this episode, we speak with Linda Jacobson, founding director and CEO of China Matters, to help make sense of the evolving Australia-China landscape. We look at the prospects for the bilateral relationship in 2019, what Australia's new China narrative should look like, the trade war, Belt and Road, Australia's current level of China literacy, and which country Linda believes is best practice in managing its China relationship. Linda Jacobson has been a student of Chinese politics and China's foreign and security policy for the past three decades. Her China-related career includes posts as a teacher, lecturer, foreign correspondent, visiting professor, senior researcher, and program director. A Finn by nationality, she served as a policy advisor on China-related issues to the President, Prime Minister or Foreign Minister in seven different countries. In 2017, Linda was invited to join the board of the new Diplomatic Academy of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Before moving to Sydney in 2011, Linda lived and worked in China for 22 years. A Mandarin speaker, she's the author, co-author or co-editor of several publications, including her most recent book written with Dr. Bates Gill entitled China Matters, Getting It Right for Australia. Her current research focuses on Australia-China ties and China's foreign and security policy. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm here in Sydney at the offices of China Matters with its founding director and CEO, Linda Jacobson. Linda, thanks a lot for taking the time to appear on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Um, now, Linda, can I begin by asking you the story behind China Matters and would you be able to describe what the, the, the work the organisation does in Australia-China relations? China Matters was founded approximately four years ago to the day. At least a couple of years it was basically, uh, in addition to myself, one or two part-timers working at China Matters. So we have grown and developed in leaps and bounds, especially during the last 18 to 24 months. Uh, We're now a team of eight and expanding probably to a team of 10 before the end of this financial year. Mm. What do we do? I call us a public policy initiative. Um, I know that the media likes to call us a think tank and I have resisted, why? Um, Certainly, we have lots of um, features which a think tank has. For example, I'm very proud we have our own monthly public policy brief. And from time to time, um, either our supporter circle members or our team, myself, uh, publish op-eds. So certainly, we are in part a think tank, or we have in part the functions of a think tank. But we do so much else that a typical think tank doesn't do, for lack of a better word, Mm. (laughs) we're still called a public policy initiative. Uh, In addition, I think it's important to say that Australia doesn't have a very strong think tank culture. Mm. It's not in the spirit of the Anglo-Saxon, American, UK think tank world. 
it's quite small, the sector of think tanks in this country, um, besides the Lowy Institute, who broadly does international policy. Uh, there aren't too many other think tanks who I would like to be mentioned with in the mm. same sentence. So okay. better not to call us a think tank. <laughs> and so what about yourself? How does a Finnish national with decades of China experience become involved in Australia's first ever China-focused public policy initiative? Well, I was uh, coaxed to the shores of Australia, family home and a 44-foot container after 22 years living in the People's Republic of China by Michael Wesley, then executive director of the Lowy Institute. Um, he was looking for a China specialist, especially a Mandarin-speaking foreign and security policy specialist. He had mm. looked far and wide here in Australia and couldn't find one, went international and found me. So that's how I came to Australia. Mm. Now, when I left the... Lowy Institute, I think it's fair to say that an eclectic group of very prominent Australian individuals, uh, those with left-leaning and those with right-leaning and those with middle-leaning political tendencies, um, encouraged me, supported me uh, to do something unique um, and basically said to me, we'll support anything that you come up with, Linda, as long as you don't leave Australia. Okay. Australia really needs China expertise. Um, there's a lack of it in this country and it would be good for you to stay. So that's how, in a way, China Matters was founded, um, by that decision that I wasn't going to go back to China, for example, mm. after I left the Lowy Institute. Um, just a few words about China Matters, because I said we're not a think tank. So what do we do besides the normal think tank work? Behind closed doors, um, we bring business into policy discussions with uh, senior public servants, and ministers and other members of parliament to not only discuss the difficult, thorny issues related to the Australia-China relationship, but also to discuss policy recommendations so that we can then recommend and advance, really, sound China policy. So if there's three things that are unique about China Matters, it's that we only look at the tough issues, the really thorny, sticky issues. So we're not looking for opportunities, for example, like... Um, the Australia-China Business Council. Um, it's an organization that's focused on the opportunities. I like to say we try and manage and possibly sometimes even help solve the difficult issues so that others can go and grasp the opportunities. Mm. Number two, we bring in business into everything we do. We want business to be front and center discussing with policymakers and bringing their views into the discussion because I think in Australia they live in totally different worlds and they don't meet and it's detrimental to the national interest of Australia. Would you say those two sides have embraced China Matters as, as, as a meeting point to come together on China-related issues? I've been really um, encouraged by the small progress which has taken place. Um, as I said, mostly over the last 18 to 24 months, it was quite slow, our development in the beginning because of lack of funding, for one. Um, over the last 24 months, yes, I do think we've been able to um, win the respect, certainly, of the senior public servants in, in Canberra um, who work closely with any issue related to China, and just about every department at the moment does, mm. um, among politicians. Um, we have something called the China Matters in Parliament Forum, even with government ministers, and we're making inroads with the business community. Um, I need to do much more. China Matters needs to, as an organization, do much more to persuade business leaders that it is worth their valuable 
time, and I understand how busy they are, to give a moment of thought to policy issues regarding the relationship because it will have an impact on their business. Mm, okay. Now, 2018 was certainly a challenging year for Australia-China relations with reports of foreign interference, the rejection of Huawei and the 5G network, and a freeze on government-to-government -government meetings. Is 2019 shaping up to be a smoother year for the bilateral relationship? Um, James, I think in a way it is, despite the fact that the world is even more challenging as far as strategic issues, China's rise, US-China relationship is concerned than last year. I think on many fronts it's going to be a really challenging year. But why do I say that I think the bilateral relationship is looking towards a smoother year than last year? The relationship was reset basically as a result of two events. The first was the spill and the change of prime minister. Mm. And this sort of gave the PRC government an opportunity. It was a circuit breaker, let's put it this way. It gave the PRC government an opportunity to set the relationship onto a smoother track, as mm. you said. Behind that was the deep anxiety that Beijing was already lost August, September, feeling uh, due to pressure from the United States. So when you are deeply anxious about possible tariff punishments coming your way, generally speaking, a much more tense relationship with the United States, um, you do your best to get other relationships onto a more even keel. Mm. And we saw this happen with Japan, with South Korea, other Southeast Asian nations, and also with Australia. So these two reasons, I should have probably said the latter one first, the anxiety about where the United States was heading in its relationship with China, and then the circuit breaker, the change in government, new prime minister, new foreign minister, I think made for a smoother relationship, and we'll see this continue now, an attempt at least to keep it smooth for the coming year. Mm. So you'd say that last year and, and, and the preceding year was more of a bump in the road rather than a, a re-pivot to a more combative relationship? No, I don't want to call it a bump in the road. It was pretty bad last year, so if I say it's going to be smoother this year, it doesn't yet mean that it's not going to be bumpy. <laughs> I think we are in for, I don't want to call it a combative relationship, but long term, I think there are going to be more often situations and instances when Australia is going to find it really tough to formulate the Australian government is going to find it really tough to formulate a nuanced, balanced, reasonable response to something that China has done and to keep the relationship with the People's Republic of China on an even keel um, amidst a very turbulent era generally, um, an evolving, rapidly evolving region and a lot of tension in the United States-China relationship. Mm. So it is going to be perhaps much more difficult Combative is perhaps a word I wouldn't choose, but certainly um, there's going to be more often moments, possibly periods of tension in the relationship. So what should Australia's new China narrative look like, or, or what do you think that the founding pillars of a, of a new China strategy should look like? Um, it's interesting that you said a new China narrative. Um, last June, China Matters published in its China Matters Explores policy brief series, is there a problem with Australia's China narrative? And it was penned by our board director, Professor Stephen Fitzgerald, and myself. 
I came out of our national meeting in June from the Sydney Opera House. It's a gathering of about 35 very prominent Australians thinking about these tough issues, and we were thinking about a new China narrative, and said to myself, we can't just keep criticizing the government for a faulty or weak China narrative. We should write one ourselves. So this is what China Matters. Um, when I say China Matters, it's I've written the draft, but with the help of and input of several supporter circle members, we are actually writing a new China narrative. Mm. We plan to present it to the new government after the elections and we'll be launching it probably around March, latest April this mm. year. Uh, what it, should it look like? It should be very realistic. It should take into account that the world has moved past the world which, for example, DFAT's foreign policy white paper described as our region. The People's Republic of China is intent on becoming the region's dominant power. It's a reality. I don't think Australia alone can stop that from happening. I don't think we can look at the region today and tomorrow like it still looked like a couple of years ago, where the United States, without question, was unilaterally the largest power, the one to which we looked to keep the region stable. China will want to be a part of the security mechanisms in the region. Mm. And when this will happen, we don't know, but it is striving towards a position of predominance. And I do think this narrative needs to quite openly, realistically explain to the Australian people what kind of a world that means for us it has to explain, above all, why, despite all the dislikes and likes we have about China, and at the moment we've been seeing media reports with a lot of the quote-unquote dislikes, why Australia simply needs to get on with China. Australia needs to have a constructive relationship with China, mm. despite a lot of the actions that China is taking which are not to our liking and will continue in the future not to be in our liking. So I think a new China narrative really has to explain that question. Why is it that we have to, after all, get on with a country that at times we don't like? Mm. Political tensions have affected China's economic relationship with its, with its neighbouring countries. For example, South Korea was hit in its tourist and retail sectors when it installed a missile system that um, was against China's interest. Um, similarly, the Philippines saw that bananas weren't getting access to China like they were in the past until it repositioned a more softer tone than the South China Sea. Do you think Australia should be wary of such punitive measures? And if such a threat is likely, what sectors do you see as, as being at risk? I think here, again, Australia needs to be realistic. Certainly punitive measures, punishments in the realm of economic measures is something that Australia must prepare for simply because if Australia goes against what the People's Republic of China perceives as its national interests, there will be, I think, retaliatory measures. What sectors would I see being targeted? I think an easy sector to target is tourism. Encouragement by the PRC government not to travel to Australia uh, would be very detrimental to our tourism. And one has to remember that in addition to the actual 
tourists coming to Australia, that tourist generates many kinds of revenues, not only in hotels and in restaurants, but by buying things mm. and buying health products and sure. uh, taking the train and taking domestic airlines and so on and so forth. So it, it has a spin-off effect. I think tourism could well be the first to be hit. There are specific agricultural products which China could target. There could be targets on wine. Um, there's been a lot of discussion, I think, over the last year, which was so bumpy, about the possibility of encouraging students not to come. There are at least 170,000 PRC students enrolled in our universities here in Australia. I personally don't think that would be the first sector to be targeted. Mm. It would be extremely detrimental to the university sector if it was. Mm. I do think that the Australian government needs to take into consideration that if it takes actions or makes statements that the PRC perceives as against its national interests, against one of its so-called really core interests, Taiwan, Tibet, Falun Gong, are all very sensitive topics, then there could well be retaliatory measures. Hmm. With the US-China so-called trade war simmering along currently in the background of Australia-China relations, will Australia at some time be forced to choose between China and the US? Or, or do you think that such a black and white narrative is, is, is redundant and that we're actually looking at more of a complex geopolitical situation? I fully agree, James. It's a redundant question. I like to say that Australia makes choices every week. To say that it makes choices every day is probably an exaggeration, but every week the government has to make a choice um, at least every month, which is either a bit more to the liking of Beijing or a bit more to the liking of Washington. Mm. Um, that's just um, rea realistic policy making to begin with. Um, when Australia decided to join the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, AIIB, it was a choice. Um, when Australia chooses to accept US Marines um, in Darwin, mm. that is a choice. So mm. choices are made all the time and it is absolutely not a binary choice. Mm. And as you said, it's much more complex. Mm. I would like to hear, if I may, just say though, on this question of choice, I do think when Australian leaders say, quote unquote, we do not have to choose, meaning not choosing between the United States and China, in reality they mean, or at least they should mean, in the minds of Professor Fitzgerald and myself, they should mean that Australia will not make or be forced into choices which damage our major relationships, mm. regardless of the stance of either the United States or PRC. I think also this aspect of independent foreign policy really does need to be explained to the Australian public. We want as good a relationship with the PRC as we have with other of our major relationships. Well, certainly the US has chosen to pursue a, a rather upfront and confrontational line towards China, especially regards to trade policy. Are we, are we seeing other nations reset their own approaches to China? And, and, and do you think Australia may end up taking on a more a direct and upfront approach to its, its own China relationship? I'm still a big believer in quiet diplomacy. Mm. I do think that statescraft requires intensive, sometimes, diplomatic efforts. Um, but what has been, at least in 
Australia branded as a megaphone diplomacy is not the way to go. Um, not when you're dealing with China, but not when you're dealing with most nations, and especially any nation in Asia. Um, so I think a direct approach with China is necessary because China is at times implementing policies which go against the absolute grain of, for example, Australian values. These are some of the most delicate issues which need to be talked about. But confrontational in public is not necessarily always an effective means. Mm. Coming to um, investment, um, it was recently reported that the Foreign Investment Review Board decreed that there's no such thing as a private company in China. What do you think China's response to such a claim would be? And, and do you think that would have an effect on um, Chinese inbound foreign investment into Australia? This is a very complex question, this question of um, what is a private company. And to be honest, it matters if a company from the People's Republic of China is planning to invest in some of Australia's critical, sensitive infrastructure. Mm. If a private company or a state-owned company is planning to invest in, for the sake of argument and explanation, an agricultural company here in Australia, yeah. or a whole slew of industries which have absolutely nothing to do with our national security, it really doesn't matter are they private or state-owned. Mm. It matters if they are about to invest possibly in a port, possibly in an electricity grid, mm. or anything else which having control of might at some juncture possibly jeopardize Australian national security interests, though I have been taught by Defence Department officials at the very highest level that there is a clause in all of these agreements which means that Australia, in the event of war or mm. conflict, can repossess the asset, even a port or an electricity grid. Oh, right. So okay. even then, there is still a backdoor for the Australian government. But the, the question, is a company private or not, really does not pertain to most Chinese incoming direct investment into Australia. Now, last year, the Victorian state government signed up to China's uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Um, were you surprised that the Victorian state signed up without Australia federally having signed up? Uh, this was indeed quite an um, interesting decision. As we both know, it caused a lot of controversy. It even led to a rather spirited debate between Victoria government officials in public versus, I would call them, security commentators mm. and security establishment representatives in Canberra. Now, first of all, signing up to the BRI, I take a little issue with. BRI is not something that um, has one big building somewhere in Beijing which you can become a member of, right. like, for example, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Mm. It is very different from the AIIB, of which Australia is a member, and a very important member. BRI is a very loosely defined, mammoth, gigantic initiative, which has thousands and thousands of small projects inside of it. So what the PRC has hoped from Australia at the federal level is that they would sign up to endorse. So we shouldn't really say sign up to the BRI. What they've wanted is a memo, a memorandum, excuse me, mm. of understanding which would endorse this Belt and Road Initiative, which 
is also the signature initiative, big project of President Xi Jinping. So the fact that the Vic government has now signed a memorandum of understanding endorsing the BRI does not yet commit the Victoria government to anything. No. It's a question of project by project deciding does Victoria government want to encourage its companies to bid for certain projects. So we come back to this question step by step, project by project, case by case. We need to always look at an infrastructure project and decide do we, Australians, does the Australian company, does the Australian perhaps local government, state government in this case, want to endorse it? So it's not really signing up to something big and loose and very poorly defined. Um, we have to look at each project mm. and make that decision. Mm. Um, for me, it was a, a storm in a teacup. I don't think there was anything wrong with the Victorian government wanting to be sort of in the front row promoting their own businesses. Mm. So do you see the uh, potential benefit for the Victorian government being uh, Victorian firms having the ability to participate in multi-billion dollar Asian in infrastructure projects? Or do you think it's more of a, a downstream relational benefit where Victoria may be a preferential investment and, and business destination for Chinese firms? To be honest, I don't know. Um, it could be both, and mm. it could be just a little bit of both. In other words, the Victorian government will be remembered when they're looking for um, a place to go to solicit support for um, a large infrastructure project in a third country, for mm. example. Yeah. It could be, oh, well, we should actually um, think positively about the Victorian government. They, after all, in public endorsed um, our project, our initiative, or it could also be that, um, well, why don't we send these Chinese investors off to Victoria as we have a very positive relationship with them. Yep. So it could be a bit of both, and mm. we don't even know yet okay. which it's going to be, but I don't see the harm done by a state government endorsing mm. in a memorandum of understanding an initiative. Because nothing's being signed away. Nothing has been signed away. Mm. Okay, so in general, in Australia, do you think, Linda, we, we have a problem talking about China? How important is it to differentiate from China, the Chinese nation, Chinese Australians, Chinese students, and, and the Chinese Communist Party? In the domestic discussion, how do we talk about China to, to avoid misunderstanding? James, I think we do, in Australia, have a problem talking about China, full stop. It is extremely impo important to differentiate when talking about the People's Republic of China, PRC for short, when we mean the nation governed by the Communist Party of China, CPC, or are we talking about Australians of Chinese heritage, commonly known as Chinese Australians? I think it's extremely important. Mm. For example, China Matters has now had a policy for at least one year, a little bit over, that we only use the PRC when talking about the People's Republic of China. Mm, right, okay. Because in English, China becomes Chinese and suddenly Chinese businesses. So you read an article about Chinese businesses being corrupt in Australia. Are these Chinese businesses based on PRC money, Chinese businesses? Or is Chinese businesses perhaps run by Chinese Australians? Mm. It's very unclear because it's an adjective. So yep. better to use PRC when we mean people who live in the People's Republic of China. Mm. And then you don't point a finger by accident 
at Chinese Australians. Yeah. We have a, a federal election coming up this year. Um, do you think there's a risk of China as an issue uh, being politicised at the federal level at, a, at an election? And do you think that we should be discussing China as a, as a federal election issue? I certainly hope China as an issue, the People's Republic of China as an issue, is not politicised and would not become an election issue. Mm. We saw China, quote-unquote, uh, becoming a bit of an issue in the by-election in Benelong and also in Wentworth. Right, yeah. Um, a foreign policy issue became an issue. I certainly would hope that it wouldn't be politicised. I don't think it's in anybody's interests. Um, now, you've done a lot of work with Australian p parliamentarians here at China Matters. Um, how would you rate the general Australian political fluency and, and knowledge towards China? Unfortunately, I'd say that China literacy, and I mean mm. by that either an understanding of the language Mandarin or an understanding, basic understanding of the PRC society, PRC economics, the way of life in the PRC, something about the Communist Party of China, mm. that I all lump under the word China literacy. It's extremely low, mm. extremely low among members of parliament in Australia. China Matters recently conducted a China study tour uh, with prominent members of parliament and a business member um, to the PRC last year. Um, what were you looking to uh, achieve on that mission? So this was a trial balloon. It's a new project of China Matters. Um, I'm quite excited about it. The China study tour of China Matters is meant to take um, an equal number of politicians from both sides of the aisle, together with um, an equal number of business representatives to China on what I colloquially call a Linda tour. Mm. Linda tour because we meet, for the most part, people I've known for 10, 15, 20 years with whom we can have a very candid discussion about some of the really tough developments, tough issues in the People's Republic. We focus on developments in the PRC, not so much on the Australia-China relationship, okay. because I think it's terribly important, as you mentioned the word China literacy, um, that we raise the level of understanding towards this country that's going to mean so much for Australia as we move forward already has a great impact on Australia and there's so little knowledge among various elites, as I call them, in this country. China Matters is starting with politicians. I think it's really important to broaden, deepen an understanding of what middle-class people, whether they're officials or scholars or business people, um, journalists, whoever, think about their own country, think about the outside world and where they see Xi Jinping taking their country. Mm. Do you feel that there's an eagerness on the other side with Chinese officials keen to learn more about Australia and Australia's um, economic and political systems? That's a difficult question. China Matters is very Australian. It's an Australian public policy initiative. So we haven't focused on the PRC. We're not trying to um, impact the PRC government per se. Mm. The China Studies Tour, I should mention, has been endorsed by both PMNC Secretary Parkinson and the Ambassador Chung, the PRC ambassador here in Canberra. So certainly, officially, both Australian government and the PRC government um, think it's a good idea mm. to conduct these tours. And hopefully one day there'll be um, a study tour in reverse mm. at the same level of candid discussion and so on. We'll have to see how it works out. Mm, okay. Now, is, is there a country in the world that we can look to as, as best practice when it comes to managing its China relationship? 
I think every country has its own unique features, its own unique relationship, really, with the PRC, James. But I do, when asked that question, point to Germany. Mm. Why? Because it's an ally of the United States, and obviously the alliance with the United States complicates or makes more complex any relationship a country has with the People's Republic of China. So Germany is an ally. Germany is quite dependent, but nowhere near as dependent economically on China as Australia, but certainly um, reaps economic benefit from the relationship. The Chancellor Merkel, she has put enormous energy, time, effort into her relationship with the leadership of China, something I'd like to see the Australian political leadership do. Um, obviously, we first need to have a prime minister in place for... Um, Longer than uh, 12 months. <laughs> at least for a protracted period of time so that he or she could actually get to know his or her counterparts in China. But Merkel really is an exemplary leader of a country, which in addition is a U.S. ally, of understanding that not only does she need to know her counterparts, she took with her people, both from the business world, but also from the various bureaucracies to know their counterparts. She went to the mm. provinces and got to know deputy governors and governors and political secretaries and deputy political secretaries and right. so on okay. and so forth. So I really think Germany, in some ways, is a country to study and has, behind closed doors, been very outspoken on human rights abuses in China and so on. So kept stuck to its gun and has certainly stuck to its values in its communication with the Chinese leadership. Mm. Okay, well, fantastic, Linda. Thanks a lot for your time today. What's, what, what's ahead in uh, 2019 for China Matters? Well, a pleasure to be here talking to you, James. Uh, what's ahead? Hopefully, we'll really get the China study tour going. We've only done that test balloon one trip so far. It's a very intensive three and a half days on the ground in Beijing. We're going to start the inaugural China Matters lecture, and so that's an exciting new development. And generally speaking, we're going to put a lot of effort into our policy brief and uh, make some of our closed-door policy deliberation events um, even more meaningful, hopefully, than before. Mm. Okay, excellent. Well, there's certainly many aspects of Australia-China relations that We'll be keeping you busy throughout the year and um, we look forward to having China Matters make sense of some of these complex and, and thorny issues. Thanks a lot. My thanks to Linda for her thoughts and insights on the bilateral relationship. For more information about China Matters, its China study tours, policy briefs and young professional program, please visit chinamatters.org.au or visit this episode's homepage where you can also catch up on previous episodes of our podcast. That's at acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts. Don't forget to pass on this episode to a friend, colleague or client who has an interest in China and may be interested in widening their own China literacy. We'd also like to thank the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trades Australia China Council for their support of the podcast. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for listening and until next time, zai jian. <laughs>